This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 6, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In her new book, Rogue Justice, Karen Greenberg details the abdication of courts and Congress to defend liberty. When Barack Obama became president, many Americans believed his pledges to reverse many of the troubling surveillance, torture, and other programs undertaken by the Bush administration. Among those pledges from the president still undone, the closure of Guantanamo Bay. President Obama is in his last year in office. Um, He promised before he became president that 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 would be a priority for him. It hasn't happened. And I would suspect, because I had some hopes that that he would follow through on a lot of these things when uh, he became president, and that he earnestly believed that he would be able to do it, I I suspect that he just got stymied by the Pentagon and others about how how to do it, and that was sort of left a sort of an impossible puzzle to figure out, and still hasn't been able to do it. So, what what is your view on Guantanamo Bay and and getting it closed? My view is that he miscalculated the pace at which he had to do this if he was going to make such a bold announcement, and that in giving Congress and the American public a time to push back, he lost his advantage. However, having said that, I want to say I think Guantanamo could still close before the end of this presidency. I think he very much wants it. I think it would not be a good idea to turn this over to the next president, whoever it is. I think um, the ISIS issue of detention has to start in a brand new um, arena in a brand new conversation. Guantanamo has harmed us in both in backlash in terms of 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 its draining resources, in terms of pointing out the weaknesses of our own system in a way that is harmful and probably incalculable. But the rate at which they are clearing people for release means that the population of Guantanamo is being reduced in ways that are dwarf what's happened prior to this in the Obama administration. You'll have a couple dozen individuals there left. It will cost, it now costs about $5 million per detainee. It will then cost something like $11 million per detainee. I really don't believe Congress is going to be able to prolong this as that goes on. And I think military commissions are going to, we're going to have to come up with some of these creative quasi-federal court uh, solutions to the military commissions. Um, it's a task that's still monumental, but I think they're trying. And um, in my ever idealistic uh, framework, I think it's going to happen. There was a moment that uh, Eric Lichtblau uh, at the New York Times uncovered, and I embarrassingly at one point said, "Did you read about this story?" And he said, "Oh, that was that was my story." <laughs> and it was basically John Ashcroft in a hospital bed. Being approached by uh, Bush administration officials saying, "Well, we got to do this thing," and John Ashcroft, to his credit, uh, in bed said, "No, you can't do that. Uh, that would be unconstitutional, and don't you know, don't do that." But that but that was sort of a a moment in time where things were sort of moving very quickly. This was not that long after nine uh, eleven, and uh, we have now a situation where we're piling on on top of a lot of things that were done during the Bush administration to arrive at this security state that you talk about in your book. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm actually uh, very glad that you pointed to that moment in the hosp- hospital, which was uh, three years after the war on terror, after 9-11. And what happened was was that uh, lawyers inside the Justice Department discovered that there were memos and authorities that had been given to the government that really were untenable, and that this secret program had started called Stellar Wind that was unbeknownst to many and off the rails in terms of legality, constitutionality, etc. And the person who carried this message to the White House after that hospital scene and who was the pivotal person at the hospital scene was uh, Jim Comey, the current director of the FBI. And while that scene is wonderfully dramatic, what happened afterwards is also very dramatic, which is that Jim Comey uh, and others basically pressured the White House to relinquish control of this program and eventually to return at least up a slice of this larger surveillance program to the FISA court and eventually to legislate some of it in what became known as the FISA Amendments Act uh, and the Section 702 program, which is now controversial in its own right. And so the takeaway here is that they they understood that things were off the rail in terms of surveillance, as well as torture, by the way. Um, they did what they could to nip and tuck at the edges, but there was no wholesale revision. On the other hand, there's so much that we still don't know about what was done. You note uh, that John Yoo uh, was writing a lot of work, writing a lot of memos there, sort of trying to justify uh, stellar wind. And as you note, we don't know much about that. The public version uh, was almost completely redacted uh, and the, the rest of it's classified. <laughs> There is one uh, inspector general report on stellar wind uh, uh, that focuses on the Department of Justice, one piece of a larger report that involved five agencies. And if you actually pay enough attention and piece it together, it's not in chronological order. It's not really in any kind of order I could figure out with a lot of redactions. You can get a lot of the story. You just don't get the detail about what all the excesses were. Not unlike the torture report, which Diane Feinstein did, which we have the, this long executive summary of, but have yet to see the actual, you know, the 6,000-page the uh, report. Um, so, so much of the, the history here is just plain redacted, gone off limits. You make a broader argument about the security state that we find ourselves in today, and it deals with abdications of both Congress and the judicial branch. Now, within the more general uh, machinations between branches of government, uh, libertarians like to talk about things like uh, judicial abdication, uh, fake judging, as it's referred to by Clark Neely at the Institute for Justice. And is this the abdication, at least with respect to the judicial branch, is that just a continuation of the process of judges deferring to executive agencies, which they do routinely? Well, I I can tell you that in the war on terror, whether it came to detention issues, surveillance issues, terrorism prosecution issues, and now I think in some ways targeted killing issues, there is deference on the part of the criminal justice system and the judicial system to the executive and to the to the commander in chief powers. And although there may be some more uh, constraints on this since Obama took office, we're still living in a post 9/11 
error of uh, judicial deference. And just to give you an example, the ACLU brought case after case after case, uh, year after year, about the fact that they thought they were being surveilled and that it was impinging upon their ability to discuss things with their clients, that they had to travel to Yemen to talk to them or wherever it was abroad, and that not to mention the fact that they thought it was illegal and unconstitutional. And um, time and again, with, with one exception, the courts just said, you don't have standing. This is a secret program. How could you possibly know that this is being done against you? Get out of my court. And it happened over and over and over again. And when Ed, Edward Snowden released his first document, the Verizon Business uh, document, which said, you know, please turn over all, you will now turn over all of your uh, records from your customers, uh, lo and behold, the ACLU was a Verizon Business customer. And, um, and when Edward Snowden met over encrypted, you know, Skype, whatever, with um, with the ACLU for the first time, his first question was, do you have standing now? So in part, what he did seemed to have been inspired by the fact that the judiciary had basically said, this is just not our business. You mentioned that President Obama has put more controls on things, but at the same time, when it comes to things like targeted killing, uh, war making, uh, more broadly, not necessarily within the purview of your your book, but it seems that uh, he's applied a legalistic process that is not quite legal. That is to say, President Obama would argue, or at least people in his administration have argued, that uh, judicial process is not necessarily the same thing as due process. Well, apparently that's what our former attorney general said about the killing of uh, Anwar al-Awlaki when it became controversial and, and out in the open. And it's one of the more unfortunate statements that has <laughs> probably been made if, if you're looking at how we think about our, our legal system and our judicial system. Um, yeah, I think what the Obama administration has done is, and this is the good news and the bad news, is codify emergency, an emergency situation. And so as you see this legislation, you know, with Congress, whether it's the surveillance program, the, uh, the FISA Amendments Act or other things, you realize that the pendulum swing is not going to come back easily because now we have these policies. Um, in a way, the best example of this is, is, may not be surveillance. It may be uh, Guantanamo which is the degree of rules and regulations that are supposedly been put around Guantanamo now, and it's completely dysfunctional. It doesn't work. It's not going to work. And if it does work, it's not going to be before my grandchildren are in college. And so, you know, um, so there are, there are all ways in which it's just been unfortunately uh, at least sluggish um, and at worst um, institutionalized. With respect to Congress's abdication of you said that we've effectively codified uh, an emergency situation. Congress prohibited detainees from coming to U.S. soil at any time, which should implicate the constitutional right of a trial. You have a right to appear, mm -hmm. to face accusers, that sort of thing. These are sort of bedrock legal principles. Yeah. The, this, again, goes to the heart of what this book is about, which is this incremental uh, lack of trust in our courts to handle national security issues, both from within the court 
themselves and from outside, whether it's Congress or the American public led by public officials and public statements. And so this is a, you know, this is a moment to notice, but it was, it was a long time in coming. And when Eric Holder decided to return the military, the uh, 9-11 trial to the military commissions, it just seemed to me one more step along, uh, along these lines. Having said that, let's look at what's changed in, in recent times, both in terms of surveillance and in terms of Guantanamo. In terms of surveillance, the State Patriot Act and its surveillance clauses, the 215 program, metadata, bulk metadata collection program, sunsetted or was declared illegal uh, by a court a year ago and then sunsetted in Congress several weeks later. Um, however, there is now discussion about thinking about how to revive pieces of the metadata program. So see what the future of that is all about. In terms of Guantanamo and, and the right to be present and all these things, due process that you've talked about, there's now talk about figuring out a way to get the federal courts involved even more than they are as advisors on the side, let's say, to get the federal courts involved in the Guantanamo process. There's talk about uh, this week about using federal court judges at Guantanamo, and there's also been some talk about doing some kind of video um, trials, video hearings, video conference hearings that are that inv invoke and involve uh, the federal courts. So, you know, we may end up back where we started, uh, which in my opinion would be a very good idea. One of the stories that you point to in your book is about the trial that followed 9-11 uh, and the at the request of the executive branch, a, a federal judge issued an opinion. And when the Bush administration learned that the judiciary was likely to go against them, they actually asked the judge to withdraw the opinion, which... Yeah. which speaks to a number of things. One, the, the, with the, I guess, uh, robustness with which a the executive branch can make that kind of assertion, uh, but also that courts might not trust themselves. Yeah, absolutely. That, that the courts... <clears throat> This is one of the problems. I mean, Judge Ludig, who was the court who uh, the judge who opined in that case, had done exactly what the government had been asking for, which to say, which was to say that an enemy combatant, Jose Padilla, <clears throat> could stay in military commission custody, exactly what the government wanted, and it went up to the Supreme Court. And there was a sense that the Supreme Court might decide that the government was wrong and vote against the government. And so the story goes, the White House asked Judge Ludig, who, by the way, at the time was one of the names being proposed for Supreme Court justice uh, position, uh, to um, withdraw his opinion. And Ludig's response to this request is so strong and so offended and so um, it tries to embrace the importance of the independence of the judiciary, but you know it's too late, um, and and um, so it's one of those very unfortunate but telling moments about how the courts operate. I mean, one of the things that that case also points to is the way in which the Supreme Court is different than the rest of the judiciary in terms of the narrative of abdication. On four separate occasions, they take the detention cases, the Guantanamo cases, and they rule against the government. And they basically try to restore some kind of legitimacy to the process and eventually grant habeas to the right to habeas to Guantanamo prisoners. 
Having said that, look what's happened with those cases. The cases were assigned to one court, the D.C. Court, courts, um, D.C. federal courts. The district courts cleared a number of individuals for uh, granted their habeas petitions. And the circuit court came in and said, you guys, this is, did you not look at the evidence? Did you not uh, understand what the government was saying? Did you not privilege their evidence um, and what they proposed? I'm sorry, we're overturning these cases. So as much as the Supreme Court exercised its independence, to what effect? So you're saying that on down, from the Supreme Court down, the, the uh, problem is, is much larger. Correct. Following uh, the events in Orlando, uh, the killing of dozens of people uh, at a nightclub there, uh, we have inv- many uh, Democrats and now some Republicans are attempting to invoke the so-called no-fly list as a pretext for abridging constitutional rights, which it's kind of a weird thing where you have something that is questionable on its face, this idea of a no-fly list, but then making use of that where there's no due process related to uh, this no-fly list, and now we're trying to make use of that as the foundation, a very shaky foundation for deciding who can and cannot exercise certain constitutional rights. Yeah, this is yet another uncomfortable space for all of us in which the clash between uh, constitutional principle and security comes, you know, in, into into you know tension and conflict. And one of the problems here is the size of the lists. You know, if you have a massive amount of names on this list, it's even further problematic. And look, nobody wants assault weapons to be put into the hands, or guns for that matter, to put in the hands of people who are going to go kill a lot of people. But how you figure that out, we have we we do not have a, a robust policy here yet. Um, we do, you know, investigating somebody is not accusing somebody, and so we're really going to have to think very strongly about who the FBI focuses on in terms of its investigations, um, how we put together our our, um, our terrorist watch list, our no-fly list, et cetera. And we're going to have to, we're at the beginning of figuring out this conversation, I think. And it, it's, it's interesting to see people saying, well, the FBI should have done more. And uh, just today, uh, Glenn Greenwald in the Washington Post says the FBI was right not to not to charge this person because he hadn't committed a crime. There's a missing piece, and that's what we're all starting to realize as a society. And, and we realized it before, but the, the uh, FBI is 13,000 agents, uh, and that includes worldwide, you know, people that are deployed abroad for investigation reasons. Um, the NYPD, to give you a comparison, has 36,000 officers. It's a, it, it has limited resources and that's okay. The problem is, what do you do with individuals who think are troubled, who think at some point in the future could potentially conduct some kind of act? Um, What you need is an off-ramp. 
You need some kind of civil society mechanism or a variety of civil society mechanisms that can can deal with these individuals in a constructive way. This is not about law enforcement. Law enforcement has to be for individuals who are on their way to some kind of imminent, imminent attack. And if we dilute that um, agenda, then we are less safe. And so we have a missing piece, and we have to fill it in. And it's going to take some very um, it's going to take some very uh, creative and energetic souls to figure this out. And I really do think it's a civil society issue. As a legal matter, it seems, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we started recording, that making terrorists special makes us all worse off. You know, it's, um, you mean making them non- Making them not- Not criminals. Not go through the normal procedures that we have in standard issue civilian courts when- you know, you know, horrific things happen. Early on, uh, uh, Michael Chertoff, who later became the secretary for the uh, Department of Homeland Security, um, confronted this issue. He was the head of the criminal division uh, at the Department of Justice on 9-11. And basically, they made the very simple and clean and clear distinction between those individuals who are rounded up in the United States and who had done something specifically against the United States to try them in federal court, as they had been doing throughout the 90s, uh, the 1990s, uh, and those who were captured abroad on the battlefield, on the true battlefield, and to dis- to make this distinction, it all got has been blurred over the last uh, the last decade and a half, and and there's another piece of this that comes back to the 9/11 trial, the fact that we haven't tried the 9-11 defendants who we've had in custody for well over 10 years and that they just sit there sort of, you know, with a, you know, defying our ability to try anybody has had, I think, a ripple effect on the court process in terms of trying these people as well, because it sends the message, well, we really we really don't know how to do this when it gets serious. And I think that's a, a further part of, of what you're talking about. The Cato Institute recently gave the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty to Fleming Rose, the cultural editor at uh, Julian's Post and Newspaper in Denmark, uh, after not just publishing the Muhammad cartoons, but also becoming a sort of fearless advocate for freedom of speech in a world where uh, terrorism is a problem. And who in, the person who introduced him was Nadine Strassen, former head of the ACLU, who really made one very strong point, which was if the problem is terrorism uh, and you want a tool to fight terrorism, the number one tool that the average American or average person can has at their disposal is not to be terrorized. There's no question about it. And and we've sort of lost our moment, which is that we there's been no public official who's been willing to come out since 9-11 and say, you know what, we're much safer than we were since 9-11. And in terms of the threat we faced then of al-Qaeda from abroad, of individuals from abroad coming here and fomenting an attack for al-Qaeda and associated forces, look at the intelligence and, and um, uh, criminal justice, law enforcement apparatus we've built up. We are safer. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be incidents and that we need to, now we need to focus on the criminal justice system. The threat now is is domestic terrorism. We need to look at it. We need to understand it. And we need to make sure our courts are incredibly robust for dealing with this. And 
we have the tools to do it. We just need to trust our courts to rebuild the expertise that, look, there are a lot of courts that are trying these terrorism cases now. But in terms of the really serious cases like the 9-11 case, they're going to have to embrace this again. They're going to have to try these cases. And, and someone is going to have to come out at some point and address the issue of fear, calm the American people down, and allow us to start um, entering the post-9-11 era. Karen Greenberg is author of Rogue Justice, The Making of a Security State. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.